Hey, we've been, uh, we've been in Titus, as I said, for a little while. We are towards the end of chapter 3 of Titus. We're going to look at, again, just one more verse in Titus. We're going to look at Titus 3, verse 10. Last week we looked at verse 9. But all throughout the book of Titus, you remember I summarized and I said that there is a reoccurring theme in the book of Titus that is our life must match our testimony. Our life must match what we say the good news is. Our life must line up. It must it must correlate. It, it can't be contradictory. Our life has to match. That's been a reoccurring theme in the book of Titus. In chapter 1, Titus addressed the leaders and he says that they need to live in relation to God so not to be disqualified and therefore not accomplish their goal. Chapter 2, he said that the laity, those of us here, us in the church, the body, those who make up the parts, the laity lives in relation to each other. Corporately, our relation to the church, so not to disrupt the accomplishing of the goal. Then in chapter 3, he said much the same thing, but with a different perspective. The church as a whole, from the top down, lives in positive relation to the world, so not to be disconnected and therefore fail to accomplish the goal. And some of you are thinking, well, what is, what is that goal that I've referred to in each case? I'm glad you asked. The goal, and this is really another reoccurring and underlying theme, and maybe the whole, uh, the whole gist of Paul's writing this challenging letter to Titus to take to the island of Crete and those brand new churches that are springing up in that, in that place. The theme is this. It's one of evangelism. The leaders, the laity, the church as a whole, their lives must all line up on these different levels in these different areas that he's addressed so that our evangelism is effective. Have you caught that? Have you caught that in chapter 2? He says that our lives might adorn the doctrine of God, that we might be, remember what I said, we might be like makeup to the gospel. What does makeup do for a lady? And some of you guys who maybe wearing a little bit of foundation here or there, I don't know. You never know. I'm just, never know. We're in Atlanta. Um, what does makeup do? It makes it decorative. It covers up anything that might appear as a blemish. Paul says that we are to adorn, we are to be a, a decorative item to the good news that we tell. Our lives are to make the gospel not look bad, but we're to make the gospel look better. And truly, we're to make it look as it is. It's good, good news. So the goal has is, is always been in the book of Titus, it's always been evangelism. Our lives need to be this. Leaders, your lives have to, have to line up in relation to God like this so you can be leaders, but not just that, so that you're not, you're not disqualifying yourselves from being the leaders so that the people in the church will follow, so that the world will see, and there's unity across the board, and everybody knows those people, their lives back up what they say. And we don't, we don't distract them from the message with our lives. Our lives build bridges, not walls. So from the top down, the leaders, the laity, the church as a whole, our relation to each other, it must line up. How we live with each other, he said in chapter 2, older men, younger men, younger women, older women, masters, slaves, in relation to our employers, employee, every relationship we have among the church, believers should be those who are an example to this world. There shouldn't be anything that contradicts our message. Then in chapter 3, our lives in relation to this world in, 
specific context to the systems of this world, to the leadership of this world, the, the government of this world. Our lives are not to live uh, antagonistically against. Our lives aren't a fight against the powers that be in this world. We don't live our lives so that when non-believers look at us, they look at us like a thorn in the flesh. They look at us and they see peace and grace and mercy. And it further reinforces our gospel message, the bigger message, that, that real important thing, not just about the here and now stuff. You remember that? Yeah. So our lives can disqualify us. Remember, we saw that over and over in chapters 1 through 3 last week. Verse 9, we saw that our lives not only can disqualify us, but if Satan can't disqualify us by our actions in our morality and in our integrity in our life, he'll do something else. Remember what it was? He'll, he'll distract us long enough to where we're not effective at all. Right? You remember that? He'll distract us long enough with foolishness. And the picture is people in the church who are fighting over, who are fighting over things that become so intense and they become so engulfed in the debate itself, in the controversy of the item itself, that, they, that they're missing the bigger picture. Do you remember what he said there in verse 9? Look at it. He said, but avoid, avoid foolish debates or controversies. Now notice that he doesn't call the doctrine itself or the issue itself foolishness, although false doctrine always is foolishness, right? He doesn't say in this verse that the doctrine itself, that's not his point, is foolishness. His point is that if we focus on it to the degree that we spend all of our time debating it and hashing over it, and we become so myopic, so focused on the issue, that we're missing the bigger picture. We're missing that ultimate goal. We're missing spreading the light into a dark world. He says, avoid that foolish stuff. Specifically, getting so involved in these debates and these controversies, and he gave us some examples of how that can occur in verse 9. He says, listen, avoid it. Literally, turn your back on it. Don't let it, don't, let it, don't let it grasp your attention. And that's so easy, church. So, Satan can disqualify us. And if he doesn't accomplish that, sometimes he just gets us to bicker and argue about nonsense long enough that he distracts us from what we're trying to accomplish in this world. Can that happen? It sure can. It does quite a bit. Well, if he isn't successful in one of those two areas, in disqualifying us or distracting us, look at verse 10. He often attempts to divide us. And he is often successful. This may be the testimony of the church throughout the ages that he, Satan, our adversary, has found ways to uh, plant men and women in our church that become divisive and uh, thus you have the expansion of new denominations, new factions, new religions, new shoot-offs, new parachurches, all this. Most of them begin because somebody's not happy with somebody else. And somebody gets a following and says, hey, you come with me. And you guys, you go your way and we'll go ours. And so just like disqualifying us or distracting us, Satan has this other tactic, this other thing. And he's going to talk about this in verse 10. Satan will, if he has to, he'll just divide us. He'll just divide us. 
In John 13, Jesus said this. You remember this verse? It's a famous verse. By this, the world shall know that you are my disciples. By this, the world shall know that you are my disciples. What is the this? What is the this? Because that seems to be the important point. By this, the world. That means the people who are on the outside looking in. They shall know that you are my disciples. Or, conversely, that you aren't my disciples. They'll see if your life lines up with your message. They'll see if your life lines up with the one you say you're following if, if there's a mark. You remember what it was? That you love one another. That you love one another. Listen to this now. Our unity makes our message believable. You follow me? Our unity makes our message believable. The opposite is also true. Amen? All right. The church has always, by way of history lesson here, the church has always and probably always will, if we, if we read Scripture correctly, the church has always and always will have a fight. We have a fight against error creeping in throughout history. Is that right? That error always is on the edge of creeping into our churches and does creep into our churches. And sometimes we do something about it and sometimes we don't. But we fight against something else, not just error creeping in. We fight for unity. We've always fought against error and for unity, and we always will. We do today. Paul did. Thus, verse 10 in chapter 3. We have to fight for unity, just as if we were fighting against error. Uh, I could take you to some other passages. I could show you 1 Timothy 4, 1, 2 Timothy 4, 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, but na- maybe none more obvious than Romans chapter 16. I want you to turn here. I don't always have you turn, but I want you to see this in your Bible. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. He's going to say much the same thing, but he uses some, some very picturesque language here. Towards the end of the book, or the letter to the church at Rome, he's got some of the same concerns that he's going to express in Titus 3.10. Look at what he says here. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, I urge you. This is strong language for Paul. It's a command. It's, It's almost as if he's begging them. It's that important right here. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And, what does it say? Turn away. Turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not to our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They're not just damaging their own lives, but they're causing, they're causing problems for the rest of the body. They're wreaking havoc. They become a cancer. It becomes infectious. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. That word there that's translated keep your eye on, it's the word uh, in the Greek, scope. We get, we get the English word scope from. Do you get the picture? Paul says zero in on these guys. Don't miss them. Take out your scope and mark them because they will wreak havoc on your church if gone unchecked. It's that important. It's that important to fight for the unity of the church. If Satan can't disqualify us with our life, 
if he can't distract us long enough to be ineffective, he'll come in and he'll, he'll supplant disunity, disruptiveness. He'll cause factions among the body so that we crumble on our own. It happened all throughout the New Testament. It happened in the Old Testament as well. There are many, many stories of this. Go to Exodus 15, back in your Old Testament, towards the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, pretty easy to find. Second book in your Bible, Exodus 15. Had a girl in my college ministry, Derek, with Gina. Her name was Miriam. Miriam is a Bible name. Miriam was a great, great girl. Just had a sweet, sweet spirit. And I always thought of Exodus 15 when I thought of Miriam because it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's probably the reason that her mama picked Miriam as her name. Exodus 15. Well, let's start in verse 18. This is just after the sea has been divided and Moses has brought the nation out of captivity and they are celebrating. And you get this woman who steps up. and She's a leader. And she's honored here in what is called in Exodus 15, the song of Moses in Israel. Verse 18 says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. They are worshiping. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on the dry land through the midst of the sea. They're worshiping. Verse 20, Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand. That's a musical instrument. And all the women went out after her. She's leading them. They're following her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them. It's a responsive song here. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Now flip over to Numbers because there's more on Miriam. Numbers chapter 12. Go to your right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 12. Every time I think of my old friend Miriam from First Baptist Duluth, I think of Exodus. I try not to think of Numbers chapter 12. Because the first verse in Numbers chapter 12, it says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And the rest of the story goes that from then on in the wilderness, the nation of Israel is fighting Moses. There is dissension among the body. And so you get this woman who is followed by other women. She is praising the Lord. She's part of the, really the inner circle. She's Aaron's sister. She's, she's honored among the nation. And she's doing great work. Later on down the road, when things don't seem to be working out for the nation of Israel, we find her griping and complaining and causing dissension to the point where God enters in and he brings his wrath upon her. And if not for the prayers of Moses... God would have taken her out. It was that important. It was that important that she not cause dissension among the body. So too. So too. Get them off track of what God was trying to accomplish in a bigger picture with the nation of Israel. It was that important to God. She ended up with leprosy. Aaron had his own issues as well. It happens in the body. This is, this is a body Issue. It's an inside issue. If you were to go to Third John, Third uh, John is essentially written about a guy named Diotrephes. His name literally means that he is thoroughly turned away. 
And the book of third John is, is essentially written to the church there to say, listen, this guy is wreaking havoc. He's hijacked the church with his error. He's hijacked the church by pulling people to himself. He's divided off and, and it's, it's cancerous and it has to be stopped. And the author says, when I get there, I'm going to call the guy out. You need to do it yourself before I even come. A whole book because of one guy in the church. And that's really how the New Testament ends. That the church is infected. The church is infected with divisiveness. Well, Titus 3, go back to Titus 3, verse 10. It says this, Reject a factious man, or woman if you will. It's gender neutral there. Reject a factious man. Now, let's first talk about who this is. Who is this factious man or woman? The word for factious in the Greek is literally the word for heretic. We get the English word heretic. And we have a connotation for what a heretic is in the English language, right? It has come to mean something that it didn't necessarily completely mean in New Testament language. So when Paul uses this word heretic, he's not exactly uh, talking about the guy that you get a picture of when you think heretic, okay? Let me explain what a heretic is in Paul's language here, the original meaning of heretic, it had the idea of someone who makes a resolute choice. Because literally, the word heretic means, foundationally, to make a choice. To choose sides. Okay? Now, track with me here. Follow with me here. Because this, this speaks to his whole point. To choose sides. It then started to mean someone whose choice is obstinate and against the truth. It's not that he just chooses a side and stays with it and doesn't cause any trouble. This word for heretic came to mean that it was someone who chooses a side and becomes obstinate and against the truth. It is used here in Titus to mean one who had chosen an idea, a teaching, a doctrine, a viewpoint, a perspective, or perhaps a course of behavior that was not acceptable to the church overall. It was not acceptable to the Word of God or it was not acceptable to the mind of the Spirit as revealed through the leadership. Literally, one who chooses for himself. Do you see the selfishness in this? Okay, Chooses for himself. He will not become a part of the consensus. He separates himself from the general consensus. He will not submit to the Word. He will not submit to the leadership. He will not become a part of that which is the mind of the Spirit revealed through Scripture and affirmed by the elders. One commentator said this, a heretic according to the notion of the word, is either one that makes a choice of an opinion of his own, contrary to the generally received sense of the churches of Christ, and prefers it to theirs, meaning the rest of the body. They prefer their ideas, their thoughts, and their opinions to the mass, and obstinately persists in it, separates from them, separates themselves in some form or fashion from the mass, Forms a party. Don't miss this. You see how this thing grows? They form a party and sets himself at the head of them. He's the ringleader, if you will, whom he has drawn into the same way of thinking with himself. Now, are you getting a picture of this person in the body? It's not just a person. It's not just a man or woman who is in error. Because if that were the case, we'd all be qualified as heretics. All right? It's not just a man or woman who has a wrong belief about a particular doctrine or another. The emphasis of a heretic is a guy who slivers off due to his error and brings others with him. In his obstinate, in his against, he forms his own schism 
among the body, disrespects the mass, disrespects the consensus, disrespects the elders, the leadership, disrespects the word itself, and is not willing to repent. But he's going to go, and he's going to go his own way, and he's going to take as many that will go with him. Are you getting a picture of this person? Now you say, I've never run into a person like that. Can I tell you that it may not be so blatant and public and obvious that everyone necessarily knows about it on this level. But can I tell you, it starts at the grassroots. And often, as I've seen it, it starts, uh, I, would even, I would even say on their behalf, it starts unintentionally. I mean, I'm sure Miriam didn't set out one day to say, you know what, I'm going to oppose Moses and the leadership and all that God's trying to do with the nation of Israel. God is out here in the wilderness. What in the world's going on? I'm sure that wasn't her heart. But it creeps in. It creeps in, and I think that's the point. I think that's Paul's heart. It creeps in just like those distractions that we need to avoid, shun, turn our back on. Don't let them, don't let them have our attention, verse 9. This creeps in just the same way. These factious people. Well, what do we do? It says, verse 9, we have to avoid the foolish, the nonsense, those controversies. Verse 10, we also get a strong verbiage here. In regards to the heretic, we are to reject. We are to reject. Very strong language. It means have nothing to do with them. Don't have anything to do with them. Now, follow with me here because uh, I, don't want you to get, I don't want you to get lost in what we're saying here because we have to make some things clear. It is very much like Matthew 18, verse 17. Let him be to you as a pagan and as an outcast. We cut him off from the fellowship. Strong language. Much like 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man. Do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We know who this person is. We know he belongs to the family of God. We know he's in the body. We assume that. We also know that they are in sin. We remember that they are a brother. We don't treat him like an enemy, but we do not associate with him. We don't have fellowship. We don't have a meal. We don't make it easy for him or her to feel comfortable in the body so that he may be, and here's the goal, there's purpose behind this. It's not just to be mean. It's not just to be evil. It's not just to get rid of people. There's a goal so that he may be shamed by being put away from the accepted fellowship. Let me say this. Remember, church discipline, this is a reference to church discipline. Church discipline always, always, always. Okay? If you think what I've just said is harsh, make sure you hear this. Church discipline is always remedial, restorative, and redemptive. It always wants to gain back. You shame strong language from Paul with a goal. It's so that when they're put out, it awakes their senses to say, why am I now on the outside looking in? What is it that I've done that is so extreme in the mind of the consensus of the body, of the leadership of the church, that I had to been rejected? It awakes their soul. 
with the hopes that they repent and you gain a brother back. Always remedial, always restorative, always redemptive. Thus, the spirit of the verse. Look at the rest of verse 10. Reject a factious man. And there's a qualification here. There's a qualification. After. Circle that word after in your passage. Something else has to happen before we reject. We don't just go around booting people out. That's not the heart of the gospel. That's not the heart of the believers. The heart is to protect the body, yes. But the heart is always to be gracious and patient and merciful, just like Christ was patient and gracious and merciful to us. So after what? After you give him one chance? No. After a first and a second warning. That's the heart of Paul. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of the church. That it's redemptive. We give them every chance to turn back, to not be separate, to not be a schism. We give them every chance to be a part of the body as a whole. When they fail to do that, then, and only then, we put them out. We put them out with the hopes that they will be so awakened in their spirit that they repent and they come back in. Uh, If you want more on church discipline, I'm not going to get into it here. We preached on it some time back. We did a series on sin. You can go online and look at sermons online. Scroll down. There are about three weeks on church discipline alone, okay? So you want to go there if you have any confusion about how the church carries out this thing of rejecting. I don't have time to go into it this morning. You need to go back. You need to go back and you need to listen to some of these. You need to read up on it if, you, if you're uneducated on how Matthew 18 exactly works. How do these, how do these church discipline things actually work? They're, they're important. They're so important that uh, it's one of the few addendums. It's one of the few clarification points in our church's constitution and bylaws. There's a whole page on how this plays out. One, because it's so important to guard the unity of the church. Two, because it's, so, it's such a thing that uh, it causes disunity itself that people get so uh, angered and enraged that the church might put someone out that we have to be perfectly clear on why and how and when and what the process is and what the heart behind it is. So you get a whole page in our Constitution, all right? So you can jump in there if you need something. Verse 11. I'll go through this quickly. He continues talking about this factious man. And verse 11 indicates a few things. It indicates that these kind of people become obvious to the body. At some point, they become obvious to the populace, to the consensus. And so when a man is rejected, when a woman is rejected by the church, when they're put out for the sake of church discipline in this sense, they're not put out and everybody looks and says they're surprised. I mean... Radley was a perfectly nice fellow. It's the idea in verse 11 that, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. I didn't exactly know why. I don't know all the details, perhaps. But you know what? I'm not totally, completely surprised. Here's why. Number one, uh, he says knowing. That means literally that it's observable. It means that the church can see it on some level. But he says that this guy is he's perverted. Literally, he's twisted on the inside. That's what the word perverted means in the Greek. Isn't that a good picture? This person becomes obvious because as you look at their life, it just appears literally that they, they're inside out. It's backwards. 
It's not quite right. They are perverted. They're twisted. He says they're also sinning. Make no doubt about it. It is sin, he says. It is sin. And in the end, he says, the obvious indicator is that they are self-condemned. What does that mean? It goes along with the theme of the entire book. Their life has told on them. Their life has told on them. Go back to Titus. He mentions some false teachers and divisive people at the end of uh, chapter 1. I want you to see this. Because he says much the same thing with more words. Titus 1 verse 16 says, They profess to know God. Referring to those people who, who are in error, who are trying to lead people away with them. Remember, he already addressed them in Titus chapter 1. This is what he says about them in the end. Here's the, here's the valuation of their whole life. Here's the evidence. Here's what is observable about them. They profess to know God, meaning they're, they're in there, right? They're in the body. We're not talking about attacks from the world. But by their deeds, they deny Him. Their life tells on them. And they are detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That's not mean language. That's honest language. When it comes to accomplishing the grand goals of the kingdom, namely evangelism, pushing back the darkness with the light, they become an essential, essentially worthless, useless. They're of no profit to the kingdom. Let me give you a conclusion here and I'll wrap up. What do you tell a young guy, Paul? What do you tell a young guy like Titus who's starting out in a new church like Titus on the island of Crete trying to build build congregations from the ground up? What do, you, what do you tell a guy? What do you tell a guy when he's first starting out? Can I give you a summary of what he's told him? Number one, you get godly leaders. Get godly leaders whose lives line up. Number two, teach men and women, young and old, how to live in the body. Get leaders. Teach men and women, young and old, how to live in the body. Number three, show believers how to build bridges between them and the world, not walls. We do that with the testimony of our life, that it lines up and it builds a bridge. Make sure your life lines up so that you build bridges to the world, not roadblocks. Number four, avoid foolish distractions. Don't let Satan bog you down in foolishness. Raise your sights. Number five, reject those who continue to disturb the unity. Pretty good game plan, isn't it? Is this relevant for us? I think so. Number seven on our member expectation list. If you were to look at our list of member expectations, really we tried to narrow down what are the essentials. If you decide this is a place that you would like to invest your life, your heart, in ministry and worship. We have just a very few expectations. Things that we want you to know that we think are important if you decide to be a part of this body. And if you know, if you know me, I'm, I'm sort of anti, uh, I'm anti-organization in a lot of ways. I'm anti-program. I'm anti-system. I don't like signing things. I don't like making you uh, fit into a box and all these things. But one thing we are here is we want to be absolutely clear on what our priorities are. 
And so we said, okay, we're going to give a list. We're going to give a list of expectations so that everybody knows and we're all on the same page, but we're going to make sure that it's just the, it's just the, the rock bottom stuff. We're not going to put in fluff. We came up with seven. The last one is this. That you have a personal commitment to the unity of our church. Hey, if you're going to call this place home, and I would say in a general sense that if you're going to call any church home, here's what you have to decide. Because it's, it's this important. It's Titus 3, it's Romans 16 important, it's, it's Exodus numbers, it's 1 Timothy, it's Ephesians important. It's over and over in Scripture, and it's been dealt with throughout history. You have to decide that you're going to fight for the unity of the body you are a part of, whether it's this body or another body. It's not just unique to us. That, that's not just an expectation for Cornerstone. That's an expectation that God has on all of us as believers. Wherever we plug in, Wherever we plug in, we must have a personal, that means I commit to it, a personal commitment. That means it's not wavering, it's not flippant, it's sure. A personal commitment to guard the unity of our flock. Lest, big goal, big picture, big theme, lest when the world looks in, from the outside, they see division. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Satan's last resort, if you will. Disqualify them. Distract them as long as I can. I'll just divide them among themselves. I'll get them so splintered that they become ineffective in pushing back the darkness with their light. Let's pray.